Hello, and welcome to For Your Listening Pleasure, a podcast focused on talking with interesting and diverse individuals and discussing how their backgrounds shape them into the people they are today. I am your host, Mallory Waxman. I am excited to be welcoming Danielle Bezalel to the podcast. Danielle is the creator, executive producer, and host of the podcast, Sex Ed with DB, a feminist podcast bringing you real stories, including all the sex ed you never got through unique and entertaining storytelling centering on LGBTQ plus and BIPOC experts. During this conversation, we discuss the origin story of her podcast, the importance of public policy when it comes to sex education, and why it is so crucial to continue having real conversations about sex. Danielle earned a master's of public health with a focus on sexuality and reproductive health from Columbia University. She also has a BA in film and media studies from UC Berkeley. To learn more about sex ed with DB, check out the link in this episode's show notes. But before we jump into today's conversation, a note about this episode's content. This episode covers a variety of sexual topics and is not suitable to those 13 years and under. Please enjoy my conversation with Danielle Bezalel. Danielle, thank you so much for coming on the For Your Listening Pleasure podcast. I've been looking forward to this conversation. For those listeners who maybe have never heard of you, would you mind just giving yourself a quick introduction? Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. My name is Danielle Bezalel. I go by DB or Dan or Danny or D-Bez. I love nicknames. That's something to know about me. My pronouns are she, her, and I am the creator, executive producer, and host of the Sex Ed with DB podcast. And yeah, let me know if you want me to expand upon that. We'll definitely dive into the podcast, but what I found so fascinating is where the idea from the podcast came from. I think all of us who have podcasts, there was that one moment that goes, no, like this isn't okay. I want to educate or share people's stories. Um, for you, you have such a unique origin story. Would you mind sharing that? Sure, absolutely. Essentially, I graduated from college in uh, you know, the spring of 2014, eight years ago, eight and a half years ago. And the year after I graduated from college, I was in Israel teaching English abroad. And I would go on these field trips with my teaching cohort and with the program every month to a different place for us to enrich ourselves in the culture and learn about different communities and food and uh, aspects of Israeli life. And we went on a very interesting field trip in October of 2014, so eight years ago last month to a really religious community in Jerusalem called the Community of the Bells. And we were being shown around that community. A main rabbi there was an Orthodox rabbi, very religious, sharing about his customs and traditions and his synagogue. And, uh, you know, essentially offhandedly mentions that he has five daughters and when each of them reach the age of 17 or 18 they'll be married off by the matchmaker and they won't learn about sex until their wedding night when they have it for the first time and their family prays that they get pregnant and have their first baby that way 
And I thought that was so terrible in, uh, for so many reasons. And in so many ways, uh, I was really appalled by this, even as a 21 year old person who, um, was feeling worried maybe about the repercussions of what I would say, but I would say I had a kind of out of body experience where I raised my hand immediately and tried to challenge this person saying these really harmful messages to a room full of 40 or 50 people. And I said, what if that's not what they want? What if they aren't ready to be mothers? And what if they uh, don't want to be in a relationship like that? And what they don't have access to the internet? What what if they want to learn more? You know, there are so many questions I think I had. And he kind of just dismissed me and gave me a wave of his hand and said that this is just how it goes here. And so that was the moment uh, eight years ago that I knew that I wanted to make sex education uh, a big part of my life. I didn't know at the time it would become my full-time career in this way, but uh, something clicked in me that day that got so angry uh, and so surprised by how easily these harmful words came out of this man's mouth. And I knew that I wanted to do something about it. You and I connected prior to the recording and you shared that story and you also shared on your podcast in the first episode. And throughout this week, as I was preparing for our conversation, I actually ended up thinking about when I lost my virginity. I had obviously known what sex was, seen it. I had the internet. I was 16 at the time, I think, and knew enough about it. And it still was that moment that was like, very life-shaping, altering. I wish things were different. It, I wish I would have known more or waited or whatever. There was just like a lot of emotions, I think, at the time. And now being retrospective and looking back on it, I was like, wow, that is such a pivotal moment. And even with all the education I knew of, and my parents were very open about talking about sex education and for a long time, I thought I wanted to be an OBGYN. So I understood what sex was. And it's still that kind of moment that's, wow, I can't imagine what it would be like as a female getting married. You're young. I'm guessing the husband's older. And experiencing that and not knowing what was happening, how like traumatic that could be. And I'm sure it's not just in that community that happens. I'm sure even in places in the United States, it's still like that. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, you can make a comparison and say, hey, you know, schools around the country that are promoting abstinence only education cause similar harm to what these young women in this experience eight years ago were experiencing. Now, the difference, I would say, between a U.S. experience and an Orthodox Jewish experience is that we have the internet here. And for better or worse, young people are getting access to sex education, medically accurate science-backed sex ed, as well as snake oil sex ed, meaning uh, sex ed that isn't science-backed and that promotes misinformation. And so the issue there is how to teach young people specifically and adults, right? I think adults are uh, subject to this kind of misinformation as well on social media and on the internet. 
but we have to teach people to decipher between what is real and what is not. And I think the fact that those young women at that time in that community and in other communities like this didn't have access to books about this or the internet, uh, maybe they have elders that they could talk to about this, but who knows what kind of messaging that they are receiving from that community of people is extremely problematic and is it, it just is simply put a human rights issue. After Israel, you decide to go to a grad program at Columbia University because you felt passionate enough that you wanted to be able to really teach this. Did you learn some things in that program that surprised you in a good way, in a bad way? Like why is this still being taught this way or made you kind of leave thinking, I want to go change how sex education is communicated or taught? Because I feel like sometimes universities still will go with the standard quo versus like realizing we need to change how we're applying or teaching um, different material. Yeah, I think something that I learned in my program that I didn't necessarily realize or recognize beforehand is just how much of an orchestration policy around abstinence-based and abstinence-only education in the U.S., is truly that. It is an intentional orchestration that really since the 80s, since Reagan was on the scene, uh, since Bush became president in the 90s and funneled billions of dollars into abstinence-only education programs, we are now seeing the after effects of those decisions and those very intentional choices that are based in religion and in fear mongering rather than science and medicine. And so I think I was very shocked to see how smart and evil right wing folks have been in the past and very much as a team, right? They, it's a, they're a very well oiled machine and they've been able to push policy through uh, for federal policy as well as state policy in more conservative states. And it's very challenging to undo those harmful policies when, as we just saw in our most recent election, you know, if the Republicans are in charge of the House and it's more challenging to get comprehensive sex ed policy passed through uh, I think that is a, a major issue. And, and when we don't have policies that force teachers and schools to be teaching comprehensive sex education, they usually don't do it on their own volition unless they have a particularly excited and trained professional who is their health teacher there or who is a science teacher who wants to advocate for the importance of that. And it's it's definitely a systemic issue. It's not just policy that needs to change. But I do think if there was a federal mandate that all 50 states within the next five years needed to implement comprehensive sex education, K through 12 in all schools, our country would look very different in terms of what folks are caring about. The, the misinformation may, may be different. Uh, and so definitely the policy aspect was a big surprise. I'm not a policy expert. I'm sure you're not, you don't spend, you know, your hours in policy really digging in, but we both know enough to be able to have this conversation. And 
What I don't understand around sex ed is the right complains about welfare, but like how, when you have so many people on welfare, because maybe they don't have access to birth control or understand sex education. So they're having kids. And then if they now live in one of the States where you're not allowed to get an abortion, you're forced them to have a child, maybe they can't provide for. So they have to go on welfare to be able to help provide. And it's kind of this cycle. And what I don't understand is why wouldn't you want to empower individuals with education to make their own decisions because that person might realize, oh, I need to get on the pill because I am sexually active. I'm not ready to have a child financially, mentally, physically, whatever it could be. And then they can go to school and who knows what they're going to do in the world if they had that freedom. But, you know, the truth is like everyone has sex. I don't know why, like it's a a taboo thing to say, like everybody has sex. Your parents have had sex, your grandparents, teachers, everyone's had sex. It's not a secret, but we make it so shameful, almost that forbidden fruit with this abstinence concept. And I feel like when you're a young kid, your brain's not fully developed. And when you're told don't do something, you're going to do it. It's not a question. You're going to do it. Absolutely. Kids are definitely going to experiment. Most adults have sex. There are a few folks uh, of the population who identify as asexual, and that's even a a spectrum, right? Uh, And so I think that ultimately, you're right, like most people in their lives do want sex to be a part of their experience that they have with themselves or with a partner. And it is critical that we recognize that there is a tie between religion and policy and the way in which we teach sex ed is very much based in this Christian idea that if you have sex, then, you know, similar to what we say from Mean Girls, you will get pregnant and die. Like that is a parody, but it is unfortunately so true of actual things that people have heard in their sex ed classrooms. And if folks recognize the entire spectrum of what reproductive justice entails, it's, it's having access to birth control and it's having access to abortion. It's having access to comprehensive reproductive health care, uh, prescriptions, drugs that they need in order to live happy and healthy lives. It's about learning about destigmatizing STIs and the fact that there are, this might be an old stat, maybe you want to double check me, but I think there are 20 million new infections in the U.S. of STIs every year. Uh, We need to start treating STIs as something to be informed about, get tested about, and if and when you get infected, as many people do, treat it, cure it, depending on the STI and manage it. And you can go on your way. Um, And so there are so many aspects to reproductive justice. And I think that it is really important that we fight for it. Uh, Nobody is going to give that to us. And I think that's why sex educators are so passionate about talking about this is because it is, again, a human rights violation that young people and everyone in between, young people and old people, many of them don't have access to this information in school. Their parents usually don't talk to them about it. And so it's they, they're going to get their info from somewhere. And so we really need to make sure that the sources and the science that folks are reading is is 
again, backed and medically accurate. There's so much that you just mentioned that I really want to unpack. But the first thing is, is like with STIs, you need to know your body. Knowing your body is looking at your genitalia and understanding what it looks like. So if you do have an STI and you know your body well enough and you see something's off, like you can realize I need to go to the doctor or something's wrong. And I think that a lot of times people don't know their bodies. And it wasn't until I remember I was in a sorority and we were all talking and someone's like, yeah, I've never really looked down there. And I was like, what? Like, it's your body. You should know it and understand it and how it works. So with that and like people not understanding, I think it it's because of shame around like sex. And I'm curious because you've spoken with so many different people across the spectrum when you are told sex is bad, like you're going to die if you get, you know, SCI, that mean girl quote. But when you think about it, like, do you think from such a young age, we're told sex is this horrible thing? Don't do it. No, that people have such issues sexually with intimacy later on in life because of that stigma or that idea that was put in their head when they were younger. Absolutely. I mean, it's no surprise that there's so much shame for everyone, but especially for women and people with vulvas around masturbation. Uh, People feel like it's gross, it's dirty, it makes them feel guilty. Once again, tied to religion, I'm going to go to hell if I masturbate. There's all of this shame wrapped up in what is for most people who masturbate and who have solo time, a very healthy part of human sexuality and of life. And so I do agree. I think that because we don't often, as young people, again, at home and in school, have access to this information when we end up having our first sexual experience with with somebody else, we often do feel unprepared, whether or not that means maybe you don't have a condom, maybe you don't know that lube can be really beneficial, especially for someone's first time if you're talking about penis-vagina sex. Um, We aren't taught that penis-vagina sex isn't the be-all, end-all of sex. Some people don't like that or don't want to do that, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, There are plenty of other erogenous zones on the body to be stimulated, plenty of other ways to feel intimacy with a partner. And because we don't, as you said, teach people to know their bodies, understand their desires, reflect on those in order for them to have exciting experiences with other people we're doing a big disservice and as we know most young people end up looking at pornography way earlier than we intend young people to look at pornography and so they're learning from that instead of us really teaching folks how the mechanics of sex works and how different things can be a part of your sexual experience without needing to feel so incredibly embarrassed and ashamed by it. And what I learned, I think it was off the Goop Netflix show series around uh, pleasure is that one, a lot of porn is through the male gaze and around male satisfaction, not so much the female satisfaction, but a lot of porn that people see females are like they're vaginas and vulvas and everything are augmented. And I didn't know that. And so I thought that was such an interesting thing because no one looks the same. It's kind of like your fingerprint. Everyone has a different fingerprint. And I think that sometimes when you're younger and start 
uh, exploring sexually, guys have could make comments like or I've had friends where a guy has made a comment about their anatomy and it's like, well, yeah, it doesn't look like that porn star because that porn star had plastic surgery down there and it's just not that's not how it looks. And I'm so curious to see what your thoughts are around like with porn. Why has it been that it's always just through the male gaze? And I know when women try to make more female focused porn, people have issues with it, which I don't understand because women also watch porn. It's not just a male activity. Yeah. I mean, I think when we're thinking about who's behind the camera, right? Like who typically is directing porn, who is casting for porn, who is uh, shooting porn, who is essentially in charge of the story. And if you were looking at mainstream quote unquote porn, that's porn found on Pornhub, for example, I don't know this for sure, but I would guess that a majority of those people are cis men. And so I think when you're thinking about who is telling the story and who the story is for, uh, that's, I think, a main reason why uh, practically like much mainstream porn is in this male gaze sense. And I also do want to take an opportunity to talk about ethical porn and you know that means being transparent about like how much you pay your actors and making sure that everything is fully consensual and everyone is aware of everything that's going on uh that you're not profiting off of them and you're giving them you know transparency around pay structures and where this is going and uh you know where the the porn will be available there's like a lot behind that and also it's around making sure it's inclusive. Are we, are we hearing and seeing people who are of different body sizes, who are different races, who have disabilities? There are plenty of people who are not really represented in porn. And so there are three websites or like apps that I talk about when talking about ethical porn. If someone is listening, who's like, oh, you know, maybe porn like isn't really for me. Um, but like, I highly recommend you to kind of like open your mind to what different kinds of porn that is made by women and is made by queer people and how that could be different. And so the first one I want to call out is Dipsy, which is an amazing app that does audio erotica, like bite-sized stories. Um, another one is crash pad series. Um, that's like porn that centers queer people. And then another one is Make Love Not Porn. And it's basically just real people who are filming themselves having sex and they're called Make Love Not Porn Stars. And it's, you know, a, a more realistic view of what sex is and and not knocking on fantasy. I think there's a lot to be said about, oh, porn, you know, allows us to think about different ways in which we can fulfill our sex lives through fantasy. And maybe we wouldn't be interested in doing this in real life, but that idea is still healthy to have that fantasy and so not knocking on other people's porn I think whatever you like as long as it's consensual and as long as you know the behind the scenes of how it was created if it's ethical like go to town uh, but I think that having alternatives could be really empowering for especially women and for queer people. Besides masturbation, the other aspect is like communicating with your partner, like your wants, your needs, what you're interested in. And I know I've experienced it in the past where I've been with a partner and wanted to try something new or let's talk about like what turns you on, what doesn't turn you on, like what 
What are some fantasies? And these are conversations that I think are completely healthy and normal, but people are so uncomfortable having them. Or I remember a partner just kind of looked at me like, I can't believe you're asking me this. But it's supposed to be a conversation. Sex should be beneficial on both sides. And also understanding if you're with someone, like what turns them on? Why do you think that these conversations are so hard to have with uh, your sexual partners? I think, again, you know, we're not learning how to do this through model behavior. We don't really see people in TV shows and movies doing this. We certainly don't practice it in sex ed in school. Again, unless you have a really stellar teacher who's trained and who really cares about teaching about communication and consent. Uh, But typically we don't see this modeled in front of us and we don't practice it. And therefore it becomes really challenging to do in real life. And so I do think it's important to, to practice and to really say, Hey, you know, I might be feeling uncomfortable and like, this is a little awkward, but like, I'm curious about this thing. It's like, Oh, it's totally okay to name your concerns and your anxieties Uh, But it is critical that we have active conversations around consent, around if something is feeling good for the other person. And these conversations may look really different from a couple who is on their first date and like maybe is having sex on their first date compared to a couple that's been together for 25 years and everything in between. And so there are certain things when you're later in your relationship that maybe you might not need to ask um, as much as you would before. And maybe you can just gauge that person's body language or the way in which that they are holding you in a certain way. And you know what that means based on having been with them for X number of years or months or what have you. So I do think that it, it is different depending on who you're with, depending on how long that you've been with them. And ultimately it does lead to better sex, better communication can can lead to better experiences for both people. And we're now in a world where everything's online. And during the pandemic, you saw a very big increase in porn. I know Pornhub had like their busiest days at the beginning of the- Oh, really? Yeah, like the number of individuals going to their site, I think it was up like over 100%, like some crazy number at the beginning I saw. And then we got OnlyFans. And for a lot of people who might be in the older generation, they now, I think, know about OnlyFans, but not at first. And what I never understood is people would talk about it like, I can't believe people are putting videos up there and kind of shaming individuals for living their authentic selves and doing what they want and kind of owning the narrative versus in regular porn, they might have not been able to necessarily decide the kind of shot they wanted or scene they want to play out or whatever it is. Why do you think we've seen such a big rise in OnlyFans? And I know you've had individuals on your podcast that are on OnlyFans. What was some of those like surprise nuggets of information you learned from that conversation? The person who we interviewed was a person who was making a lot of money from OnlyFans and was supporting her family uh, with that income. And so I think a few surprises, one that people can and do make a ton of money off of OnlyFans and it allows them to receive a majority of that income rather than, as you mentioned, pornography where maybe folks are getting paid hourly or by the film rather than them being able to put out their prices and choose exactly what they want to sell. And 
I think another surprise is the fact that it takes so much work. Uh, This person was sharing that she had 12 hour days, many days in order to shoot her content, market it, community management, DMs, make sure her page is up and running, get her workshops going. Like there's, this is very much a full-time job. I think people have this notion that because you can list a picture for a certain amount of money that you're not working hard, but there is a lot that goes into it. And I definitely think that we should be so supportive of sex workers, especially as folks who pay to receive that content. There's there's just such an irony between people who definitely behind the scenes pay for that content and then have shit to say about people who make it. It's just, it's hilarious to me that the, the hypocrisy of like someone wanting to enjoy that content and then shame someone else for making it. And so I'm not surprised by that. And that's just something that I feel like. I'm not surprised either. I forgot what that website was that got a few years ago, Madison, Madison something. Do you know what I'm talking about? And it was like. We're like use cheating. Yeah. All the escorts. Ashley Madison. Yes. Yes. And that one. And like when they released some of the bigger names, there's a lot of people who preach marriage absence and you're like okay but you have a side piece and it's just it's very interesting how sometimes I feel like those who are screaming the loudest about abstinence or old school sexual uh, values yeah that they're usually the ones that you know are doing stuff that good for them but live it out in the open don't preach one thing and act a different way but it seems like that's where we are in society over the summer obviously the supreme court uh overturned roe versus wade i know like as speaking about now i'm getting goosebumps thinking about what that meant for our country i know that you dropped a bonus episode around that it was a scary time still is in our country What were your first thoughts when you heard that verdict come out? So I feel like there were two kind of responses for me. One was when the leak happened and I was really angry and kind of in disbelief and frustrated. And then when the overturning happened in June, I was just really sad. Like, I think even though I knew that it was coming, it still made me incredibly sad. And, and and that huge wave of sadness and anger really washed over me. And that day I ended up going to a protest. I was living in Brooklyn at the time. And I went to New York City, um, to Manhattan to protest and just to be on the streets felt really good. And again, like you said, it's it's still a scary time in our country. And even before the leak came out and before Roe v. Wade was overturned, it's been very scary for many like poor people, low-income people, Black people, people of color who have lived in states for a very long time, who have been restricted by the laws in their state, and or if they live in states where maybe technically abortion is legal, but maybe it's criminalized or maybe it's less accessible. And it's just important when we're talking about abortion to really recognize like who is the most impacted by these decisions. And as we know, folks with wealth or folks who have access to certain people like me, for example, right. You talked about wanting to be an OBGYN. My mom is an OBGYN. Like if I needed to, I could go and she doesn't perform 
abortions, but if I, I could ask her to do that, um, if she had the correct medications for me that I could take, if it was before, uh, you know, 11 weeks, or if I needed to have uh, a, a procedural abortion, then she would be able to do that. And like, I think a lot of people have that kind of access if they have money, if they have connections to people who do that. And many people don't have that. And and when you are pregnant and don't want to be, and uh, that decision is no one's but your own and your health team and your family, whoever you want to include in that, um, family meaning your partner, not necessarily like your uncle, but it, it's, it, it's really disheartening to know that people can't get the care that they need and haven't been able to for a very long time. And that will only continue with these kinds of restrictions. Like yourself, I know I live in Illinois, which is a blue state, so it's still legal here. But even if it wasn't, I know that I'm very fortunate enough to have enough privilege that I could buy an airplane ticket in a hotel and go to a state that would allow me to um, get the medical treatment that I want for my body. So when I heard that, it really got overturned. My heart just sank for all the women in this country who are pretty much being told you're a second class citizen. You don't have autonomy over your body. Even if you medically need one to save your life, we're valuing another life that hasn't even taken a breath yet over yours. Or I've had friends who had to have um, abortions because they had a miscarriage and that was the only way to save them from getting sepsis. And it's just kind of crazy that a lot of these individuals who are making these laws don't have a medical degree. Oh. Recently on TikTok, I don't know if you found this account, but it's called Roe vs. Bros. I love that. I love it. I love their videos. And it scared me when they're asking men, do you know how many tampons women use when they have their period? Can they pee with the tampon in? One of them was, why are there different size tampons? And the guy literally answered different vaginal size cavities. And it's like, no, but at the end, they all were like, yes, I'm a proud voter. I'll be voting in mid-elections. Right. I'm voting. And I'm thinking, these idiots, because we don't have sex education, are voting and they don't understand the female body. And I think I watched those videos and it was like right around the time you and I had chatted prior to the recording that I was like, this is why sex education, full sex education so important. Understanding what a menstrual cycle is, understanding how periods do affect people's bodies. And it's important for men to know that too, if you're going to be voting on laws that really have nothing to do with you, but right, you get a seat at the table because you always have. Yeah, it is very scary and unfortunate. And like, it's it's a problem because we view sex ed as this very separate thing when it comes to gender and when it comes to boys learning about periods like we don't teach them and so why would they go out and seek that information i as a woman with a vulva and a uterus i'm not go i'm not going to google like stuff about penises to be fair i mean it's just it's just like why, unless I was taught that, or unless I had a reason to go get that information, then I don't think that I would be incentivized to do that, which is why, again, policy, conversations at home, school-based curriculum that is comprehensive, that essentially ensures that people get the information is critical so that people can grow up and have this information. 
And I think you hit it. Like I never Googled about penises, but when I've been in relationships and had like some questions, cause I don't have one, I'm going to ask my partner about it and we can have a conversation. Or if you're in a relationship and your girlfriend experiences cramps, asking her what's happening, like open the door for a conversation. Cause we want to share. So we're not like secretly in the corner in pain pretending like we're fine, which by the way, men, like a lot of women do because they think you're going to freak out when we talk about a period. It's just so interesting. And as I've had different conversations with women coming on the podcast, sex education does trickle into the workplace. Having an understanding of how when people aren't educated around like periods or stuff going on, it does affect how women show up in the workplace after having a child, like to have only four, maybe six weeks, if you're lucky, right. of maternity leave and not understanding women have to pump or what's going on. It inhibits and actually hurts females being able to grow in their career. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. That's really true. And again, goes back to policy, right? Like we don't have paid parental leave because we don't as a society in America support families in that way. We don't support women. We don't support men. When we're talking about straight relationships, like men don't get paid parental leave in most companies. No. So there's a lot of problems. We've addressed quite a few. What are some things we could be doing to try to start to change policy? Is it starting at the school districts where your kids go to school and looking to see who's you're voting in? Is it larger on like a state or federal level? What are, what would you suggest? Yeah, I think there are a lot of things that people can be doing. I think just by listening to this podcast, you're eons ahead of other people who maybe aren't interested or didn't think they need this information. And it really starts in our own communities, talking about it to your family, talking about it to your friends, seeing what they think, seeing what they know. Uh, and understanding what is happening in your community when it comes to organizing, when it comes to ensuring that you are doing what you can in your part of the world to make it a safer, happier place when it comes to youth uh, receiving sex ed, especially in schools or in after school programs or what what have you. So I do think like starting local is is really important. And yeah, I would check out, hey, if I live in Alabama or I live in Nevada, like check out what your state policies are for sex education. Check out uh, the Guttmacher Institute is a really good place to start. If you just Google Guttmacher sex ed stats, you can see all the information about what is required of your state and try to figure out who in your state can be responsible for changing those policies, make calls, emails. Uh, that I think is, is a secondary thing. And Third, I would say, like, keep informing yourself, uh, listen to podcasts, read books, follow people on social media who can inform you and others about sex ed that maybe you you didn't know before. Um, so I think that's that's enough of a to do list, maybe. And I'm going to plug your podcast, Sex Ed with DB, because I listened to, I want to say over half the episodes over the oh, last wow. like week and um, found them so interesting. Over the last week? Yeah, I'm I'm a really good binger. I <laughs> could win an Olympic gold medal in binging. We have like a hundred episodes. I know. I mean, I really, I committed. Wow, and, you could, you probably know my voice better than most other people. A lot of them were really interesting topics that I've had these conversations 
conversations with girlfriends or with others, or really I want to know more as I'm expanding on my podcast too. But what I love about yours is that you have different hosts with you and each person has a different take or a different background. How did you decide to go with that format? So we kind of changed the way in which we've been doing this over the past, we're in season seven now. So over the past seven seasons, the first season was very much, we had five people who were on the same, you know, who are on every episode of the first season. And we just took little bits of their expertise and kind of applied it to that main question we were talking about in that episode. And then throughout like second, third, maybe, maybe, and fourth, I can't really remember, or maybe just second and third, we did multiple guests per episode on that topic because we really wanted to get deeper into those topics with with different perspectives. And then in the latest seasons, we really just had one person on 45 minute conversation, getting as deep as we can with that one person in order to fully get their background and their expertise. And I think I, at the time I started the podcast, I didn't have the information and the frameworks that I feel like I do now uh, compared to getting my master's degree at Columbia. And so I really wanted other people to share their own stories and share it from their point of view and their perspective. Um, I'm not a person of color. I am mixed race. I'm half Afghani and, and half white. And so for me, it was really important to get like people of color in there and black people and really like allow them to just share who they are what they're experts in, what might I not know from their experience and what might listeners not know. Um, and the same thing with queer people. You know, I, I think that it's really important that if we're talking about queer issues, that we talk to queer people uh, who identify with the identities that we're talking about in order to best get their stories and information out to people. And so I think we settled on that format in order to really center those voices. Similarly, I want to talk to people who are different than me because I don't know what their thoughts are or how they feel about something. And I know for me as a white woman, I didn't realize how much privilege I truly had until I got into conversation with some people. And there were some times where, you know, I had a guest talking about something and I would say, I'm so embarrassed to say this, but I'd never realized that, or I didn't know about this, but that just shows me like, you don't know what you don't know. It's through conversation that you learn so much more. But have you felt like that in certain conversations? Absolutely. Yeah. I think that you can feel very humble in this work by having people on really to learn from them. Right. I mean, I think there's always opportunity to feel like, oh, I missed the mark or, oh, I didn't really know that before. Oh, this question could have been better. But at the end of the day, as long as you approach it with an open mind and an open heart and willingness to learn and to improve. I think that is the best that you can ask of people. I think it is really easy to get maybe defensive in this work or just feel like, you know, no, I I don't, I need to get my exact story across and that combats your story. And I think that ultimately that doesn't really serve anybody. I think if we're not willing to, to learn and keep an open mind, uh, but yeah, totally. I have absolutely felt like, oh God, I just really like fucked up there and that's really uncomfortable. But I think that's just an important part of learning. What do you want to do next with the podcast? Where do you want to grow it to? Let's talk about goals, visions. Like where do you see it going? My vision board. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we've been doing it for five and a half years now. 
So it feels very much like we are very much deep in this work and we we have found our niche in it. So I want to congratulate us and be proud of us for the work that we have done. And always I'm thinking of what's next and how can I grow? And so we have about 100,000 all-time downloads now. We got 100 episodes, um, you know, yeah, which is really great. Uh, we have about 100,000. Everything's happening in hundreds here. We have 100,000 followers across our platforms. So we, I just want, I want a million. Like I want a million of each of those, well, not episodes, but a million followers, like a million downloads. I think like the more and more people that can just listen to the kinds of folks that I have on and to the kinds of sex ed topics, if they can learn one new thing every time they listen, that can impact someone's entire life trajectory. And so I know for me, it did like sitting in that synagogue, hearing that man talk about what happened to his daughters, like that, that moment changed my life. And I think if I wasn't there, I wouldn't have been doing this work. And so like, just the more and more people that I can impact and, and share like, Hey, if this was your experience too, where you got this really shitty education and you didn't get the kinds of information that you deserve to just like be yourself and be happy and like do whatever you want, basically, then like, I'm here to do that. It would be so interesting for you to go back to Israel, to that synagogue and talk to, if you could find that rabbi and just find their daughters and be like, so what happened? what happened? Like, how Whoa, are you doing? I've never even thought about that. Like, would you teach your daughters the same thing? Because by now they have a few kids. Like, I would be curious to see, would you want to put that trauma that you experienced onto your daughter? I would just be kind of curious to see, like, what now? Yeah. I mean, that's a really good question. I've never even considered that. I think because Orthodox Jewish communities are so close knit, like yes. there is a bit, it's similar to like Mormon communities who are really far on the Mormon spectrum, I guess you could say. They're uh, the extremes. They're the extremes of the religion. There is no right. gray space when right. it comes to you, that. And if you leave, you're out. Like yeah. you're not able to come back. Like many communities shun their other folks who decide that they don't want to like experience that lifestyle or don't agree with it. And so it's very scary. People are threatened and feel like they're not able to live their true selves. And it's, it's extremely harmful um, to, to be that restricted. I imagine we're lucky. Yeah, we're very lucky. And we're also very lucky to be, I think, growing up at a time where we have the internet, where we can Google stuff or find more information. Because I think about when our parents were growing up or even our grandparents, like it was very secretive. It was all behind closed doors. You didn't have the resources to try to educate or figure out something. I'm sure that's also where a lot of the shame component still trickles in generation after generation. Right. Thank you so much. This has been so lovely. I love the work you're doing. I think it's so important to talk about sex and just everything that comes into it, but more so sex education because nothing's going to change unless policy really changes. And that's what we all deserve is policy to allow us to express ourselves sexually in a safe way, knowing benefits or the consequences both sides of the coin. I end every episode with the same three questions. The first question is, if you had a quote or mantra that you live by, what would it be? I think that my quote or mantra that I live by is always save room for dessert. 
And that is a very like literal and metaphorical phrase. I think that literally just love sweets, love chocolate. Make I always make sure that I have something sweet every day if I can. And it's just like a life is here for us to enjoy. As you said, we have a lot of privilege and we have a lot of ability to learn and make change and do the best that we can. And we're also really lucky to be here. And so I think really recognizing those sweet moments and really being able to enjoy and laugh and be silly and goofy is super important, at least to my life. I love it. I'm also the kind of person that likes to have something sweet once a day. <laughs> like I have no control over Reese's peanut butter cups. Like Me I'm a goner. Too. Those are my absolute favorite. Same. Um, the second question is if you could relive any one day, which day would you choose? This one's a really hard one. I'm sure you know that, but I think the the most like exciting day that comes to mind for me is when I was studying abroad in Italy when I was in college and I went on a weekend trip to the Swiss Alps in Interlaken, Switzerland. And me and my pal of mine, we were doing this really fun night excursion where we were in a van with a bunch of other people, like pitch black outside at night. We went up this mountain and it was like a sledding adventure down this mountain. And we had glow sticks like as necklaces. And we like swung the glow stick to hang like on our necks, but on our backs so that the person behind us could follow us down. And it was just one of the coolest things I've ever done. There were just beautiful big trees that we were going through. We were all singing and having a good time at the bottom of the mountain after our sled ride was done. We had cheese and chocolate fondue and wine, and it was so warm and cozy. And it was just, it was just so fun. It was just one of those, as they say on TikTok, core memories that I don't think I'll ever forget. I love that. Sign me up. That sounds amazing. (laughs) Yeah. The final question is, if you had a theme song that played every time you walked into a room, which song would you choose? Again, tough question, but I always go back to Love on Top by Beyonce. I think specifically when she's going up and up and up a half step at the end of the song where she's really raising the stakes is so fun and so exciting. And whenever that song plays at a wedding or a dance party, like everyone is involved and it just gets everyone riled up in the best way. And I think that would be the best tune to come in on. Well, I'm excited to add that song to the For Your Listening Pleasure theme song playlist. So guests can hear your theme song as well as every other theme song. But I'm also really excited to add my first Beyonce song to the playlist. First one. First one. So I'm really excited about that. So thank you. Of course. Um, Danielle, this has been so lovely. I'm just so excited to have been able to talk to you and i love your podcast and i can't wait to see where it goes so thank you so much for being here. thank you thank you mallory i really appreciate chatting with you and love what you're doing like love the idea of conversation bringing people together so thank you